Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation. The goal of the Sounds True Foundation is to provide access and eliminate financial barriers to transformational education and resources, such as teachings and trainings on mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion. If you'd like to learn more and join with us in our efforts, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, my guest is Dacker Keltner. Dacker Keltner is a professor of psychology at UC Berkeley and the founding director of the university's Greater Good Science Center, a research center committed to the scientific understanding of positive emotions. He's the author of Born to be Good, The Science of a Meaningful Life, and also the book The Power Paradox, How We Gain and Lose Influence, as well as a new book coming out in January of 2023 on awe, the new science of everyday wonder and how it can transform your life. With Sounds True, Dacker Keltner has created a new online training, partnering with his colleague at the Greater Good Science Center, Dr. Eve Ekman. The training is called The Greater Good Training for Health Professionals, Science-Based Skills for Emotional Resilience and Well-Being. It's a program that's designed to help health professionals who are under so much stress at this time avail themselves to science-based research that enables rejuvenation and renewal. You can learn more at SoundsTrue.com. Now, here's my conversation with someone who really inspires me, Dacker Keltner. To begin, Dacker, tell me a little bit mm -hmm. about you and how you came to be a psychology professor and the focus that you've had on emotion. Why that focus for you? Wow. <laughs> Just a little uh, bit. Yeah. Well, thank you, Tammy. It's nice to be in conversation with you again. Um, yeah, I, I was lucky to be raised by an artist. And um, then my mom was a um, professor at Cal State Sacramento and taught women's literature and, and uh, poetry and, and Virginia Woolf. And so I, from a very early time in my life, my parents were getting me to think about the arts and the humanities and psychology, right? And they gave me books uh, by Alan Watts and Carl Gustav Jung and Carlos Castaneda when I was in high school. So, you know, I was long interested in passion from my parents, you know, my mom's teaching and romanticism and then painting. My dad loved Goya. Uh, and so I just loved emotion. Um, thought it was, you know, was like a lot of people, like it's the very essence of the soul and consciousness. Um, and then uh, I entered into, I was good at science and math and headed toward more kind of quantitative, statistically oriented psychological science for graduate work. And at the time, and I'll just close out here, um, you know, the field, this is the mid eighties was really in what's called the cognitive science revolution. The mind is a computer, it processes information, there are algorithms, that's how we make sense of the world. And, and I really felt that um, emotion was missing you know, in our conceptualization of the mind and the body. Um, and there were kind of two critical events that happened to me. The first is my grad advisor, Phoebe Ellsworth, who's a brilliant scientist, and I did a project showing that with little brief changes in emotion, if you feel sad, for example, you just look at the world differently. It's like this lens upon reality. And then the second big you know, transformative experience, thanks to Phoebe, was she enabled me to get a postdoc after my PhD at Stanford with Paul Ekman. And I learned from Ekman the brilliance of Darwin and the and just the incredible wonders of how we express emotion in the body and in the face and in the voice. And that's kind of defined my career for the next 33 years. Mm -hmm. Now, 
Dacker, in your book, Born to be Good, you have this sentence at the beginning of the book. (laughs) I've been led to the idea that emotion is the source of the meaningful life. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I have to talk to Dacker about yeah. that because I think a lot of people think, you know, actually emotion is the source of my problems. Yeah. And, you know, happiness comes and goes, but no, the source of a meaningful life is something else. It can't be emotion. Yeah. Thank you for asking that question. Um, uh, you know, the, the, and it really, there are kind of a couple of observations there. Why, why would I write in Born to Be Good that emotion is the source of the meaningful life? Um, and, and the first is the kind of emotions that I started to study. You know, the field had locked into six emotions, anger, fear, sadness, disgust, surprise, and happiness. That was it. You know, and, and people weren't thinking about compassion or, or gratitude or embarrassment or ecstasy or envy or what you and I have talked about before, awe, right? Um, and Darwin and Ekman laid out an approach to those emotions. And so beginning early in my career, 25 years ago, I started to study those emotions, you know, amusement, laughter, mirth, joy, awe. Um, and, and then as the, so that was the first thing is like, once you think about what compassion gives us, you know, in terms of ethical understandings and a sense of meaning in the world, as Karen Armstrong, the religious historian has argued, compassion points us in the direction of caring for others. Awe, which, you know, I've been studying for 10 years, 15 years, people's experiences of awe in music or nature or spirituality or contemplation, it, it points them to like, this is what you care about, you know? So those emotions just empirically started to reveal um, evidence for that claim that emotions are the source of what we find meaningful or a higher purpose, if you will. And then alongside that, Tammy, you know, the field really started to change in the emotion revolution and so there were people like Jonathan Haidt who argued that, you know, our sense of morality, freedom, justice, you know, caring, equality, those are ancient emotional tendencies that you see in non-human primates. So the, my work on these emotions that are pro-social, changes in the field, people like Jonathan Haidt saying our sense of meaning and purpose and right and wrong comes out of the gut and our feeling, and then neuroscience. You know, there's new thinking by Solms and colleagues that our sense of self and meaning really is, is not in the cortex where we think about things. It's really in what, you know, the subcortex down by the brainstem in the periactoductal gray where that attaches the sense of meaning to what we see in the world and it's rooted in feeling. So I think it's, I think it stood the test of time and even expanded that thesis. Mm -hmm. Dacker, maybe you could address this personally as well, because (laughs) you're someone, you're such a generative person. You've created so much good work in the world. And Mm. I wonder when you feel in to your own sense of having a meaningful life, what emotions are fueling that for you? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and forgive me for always launching into science, you know. No, I, I like uh, science too, but yeah, you know, I'm, know. I'm, I'm very experiential, kind of inside out as well. So I'd like to bring them both together. Yeah, here. thank goodness. Yeah, you know, um, the I, I think that in some sense, that's the question we have to be asking today, you know, as we try to come out of the pandemic and January 6th and the like, is like, you know, I certainly see it in my Berkeley undergrads, like, we are now in this transformative period and what do we care about? What is meaningful to us? What gives us the chills, right? And for me personally, um, it, it definitely, you know, was this sense of that I just returned to since being a kid, thanks to my parents, um, you know, who were alternative and already artists and, you know, social activists in some sense, like, man, I really care about people who are left behind in society, you know? Uh, So, you know, I would say the most meaningful experience I've had in the last 10 years is volunteering in San Quentin and, and writing a brief against solitary confinement came out of my academic interests, 
but then when I was in there with the people and I realized, you know, our uh, social systems are, you know, mass incarceration are, are really perverse and brutal. You know, that gave me this meaning that stay, anytime I think about it, it, it makes me want to do work on that. Um, you know, the, um, the uh, sense, it, it's interesting, Cammie, my science gives me meaning, you know, and so like when um, we, I've, I spent 30 years studying the face and the voice and human touch. And it suddenly opened my eyes to what Soren Kierkegaard called the significance of insignificant things in our social lives. That as we move through our day, we have these conversations and we see strangers in the street and, and we embrace a friend and, and, and it just feel, just studying human emotion. I'm like, God, humans are doing such good work. So that's been meaningful. You know, raising kids changed my life and it continues to do so. Um, you know, teaching. <laughs> UC Berkeley is, we have a lot of poor students, a lot of students coming from traumatic backgrounds, you know, to watch, you know, lots of, you know, lots of Mexican-American students, Latino, Latino, to watch them go on to great lives, great careers. I, I tear up, you know, when I think about it. So there's a lot. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, what I notice is that your work, but also who you are and what you embody inspires me. And I think it inspires others mm -hmm. to live a more mm -hmm. meaningful life. So I just want to say that, Dacker, um, because I really found that to be true as I was engaging in uh, your body of work. Okay, mm -hmm. now I wanted to ask you this question about the meaningful science that you've done. It's yeah. another thing you write about in yeah. Born to be Good, about how perhaps survival of the kindest yeah. is more true than yeah. survival of the fittest. Man. And that perhaps this Darwinian idea of survival of the fittest is actually outdated. And yeah. I thought, is this actually like now scientifically accepted? Yeah, it's, you know, the, I use that phrase in Born to be Good, survival of the kindest. It was one of the most striking discoveries in writing that book. And is I reread um, everything that Darwin had written about expression and then Descent of Man. And, uh, and he, for personal reasons, he watched his daughter. Um, he was, a, he loved his kids and he did a lot of, he played with them and cared for them a lot. Um, and one of his daughters died really young, um, I think at age 10 or 12, Annie. And it, it devastated him, like the death of a child does. And, and as Adam Gopnik writes, he's like, that changed Darwin's thinking. He observed just like you had me observe. How do I feel about this? And he, he just felt profound compassion. You know, life, and he's like, wow. This urge to care is, is deep, it's mammalian. And, and he wrote that sympathy is our strongest instinct. Those communities with the most sympathetic members will flourish and raise the greatest number of offspring. They win in the game of evolution. And to your, your more focused question, that thesis, we have moved from 30 years ago, thinking humans were selfish and greedy and want to compete and gain over others to different traditions showing if I'm given resources around the world, I share 40% with a stranger. You know, we share. If I make that decision quickly, I share more. It's intuitive to share. Uh, compassion is rooted in ancient parts of the nervous system, right? Like the vagus nerve, which I study. It's mammalian. And then finally, people who share and care and feel compassion, um, they do a little bit better in life. They live longer. It's good for their bodies to, to provide care. So I think, I think there's a lot of evidence for the thesis, even more so than when I wrote Born to be Good, mm -hmm. uh, for sympathy being a very strong instinct in the human repertoire of tendencies. 
Well, Dacker, how do you make sense, and I'm sure you've been asked this many times, <laughs> by the very obvious examples <laughs> of people who are, yeah. you know, capital J jerks yeah. and seem to have yeah. lots of power and uh, seem to be doing brilliantly in terms of wealth, yeah. influence, yeah. et cetera? Yeah, you know, first one is the the what scientists always talk like, which is, well, we're, you know, there are many things that we, that are part of our human nature, you know, so we... If you look at the evolutionary approach to the human psyche, we're both caring and brutal. We are genocidal and we'll sacrifice ourselves. So we're many things, as Walt Whitman said. Um, but the, the more interesting question that you're posing, Tammy, is to like reflect on our society today. Why do we have so much in the United States profound economic inequality? Why are there 600,000 unhoused people on the streets. Um, and, and I think, you know, when I wrote my second book, The Power Paradox, one of the things that I thought about was the changing nature of power. And in hunter-gatherer societies, there was more sharing and caring because of the nature of the social systems and, you know, smaller groups, et cetera. And with the emergence of agriculture and shared stored resources and certain kinds of religion, we moved to much more hierarchical cultures that, that allowed jerks to prevail, right? They were held, they didn't have accountability, et cetera. And, and I think we're trying to come out of that with women's rights and sexual rights and you know, civil rights, et cetera. So it's, it's, you gotta look into the social systems that allow jerks to prosper. And there are many, <laughs> which is outrageous, politics being one, you know. Mm -hmm. In terms of somebody taking this into their yeah. own life and saying, you know, I want to believe that, you know, the kind person uh, finishes well. I, I yeah. really want to believe that. I want to live that way. I, I have mixed evidence yeah. around me. Yeah. Uh, how can you give me confidence that I'm going to, that's where I'm going to invest my energy? Well, I, you know, I think that the, you know, the, um, the I, I, I think it's good to put aside our, our cultural conceptions and look at empirical evidence. And, and so what we do know pretty robustly is kindness is good for your life expectancy. And, and if so, that matters for a lot of people, right? <laughs> Obviously especially Americans who love health outcomes. So if I practice kindness, uh, I handle my inflammation profiles better. My, um, my vagal tone is stronger. My, you know, my reactions to threats uh, don't activate the amygdala as much. I, there are a few studies showing benefits to life expectancy. So that's one. Um, the second is in most work contexts, uh, if you practice kindness, you will do better. You're going to get screwed over. And that's the thing you got to really watch out for, right? Uh, there are Machiavellians everywhere and, um, and they pick up on a kind person and will try to exploit them personally or professionally. So you got to figure out a strategy for that. Um, and then, you know, I think uh, the third thing is to, and I'll give an interesting personal example, um, is to speak truth to power, you know, just to, you know, I worked with um, women leaders in Kaiser Permanente uh, 15 years ago. Um, we were on a weekend retreat. These are women who have m such complicated jobs, you know, way bigger budgets than I would ever possibly get near to people's lives on the line. And they really adopted this role, rule, culture, a, a commitment to like kinder culture in medicine, like can't shout at people, can't swear at people, you know, treat people with respect. So that's a form of speaking truth to older forms of power. Um, and then, you know, <laughs> you have to see how it stacks up and does it work for you, um, like everything we do. And, and you know, uh, academics is a, you know, very adversarial peer review based process. I take a lot of beating in the work I do. It, it gives me a lot of doubt, Tammy, you know, like, wow, I've tried to be kind and not go out and undermine other people's work, but 
that happens to me and how do I keep keep close to this philosophy of kindness and so it's a continuing work in progress mm -hmm. it does seem to me too that just in terms of our inner experience of fulfillment in our lives that yeah. it has its own reward oh uh, regardless of how it positions us in yeah. society and I, you know, when I teach happiness to Berkeley undergrads and, and larger audiences, it's replicated in 46 countries. Your happiness has this curve where it starts high and it kind of toward the middle of life, it drops because you're just doing all the work we have to do. And then it rises until you're about 75, right? And, and when you look at people who are 65 or 70, you know, one of the things they say is like, it's to use your word, it's about meaning life is about loving, no matter, you know, it's about service. Um, and, and they are speaking about compassion. And you're right, like, why not orient towards that earlier? Um, you know, Karen Armstrong, the great religious historian in The Great Transformation, which is an amazing book, says all, you know, cultures that she studied, Judeo-Christian cultures in particular, 2,500 years ago, ethically and spiritually committed to kindness as the core principle like that's that's where you start and i think to your point like personally and subjectively if you when i really feel like i'm living life right it's when i'm being kinder you know um and i'm like hey you know give a little money to the unhoused person or that colleague's frustrating me uh you know you know be patient. I just one final example I gave to my undergrads. I do these saunas at the, this climbing gym. And there's this elderly gentleman who, you know, he's Russian and he he learns saunas, the ethics of saunas in Siberia. And he always lectures us when we're yeah. in there get taking our sauna. And he here's how you pour the water. Are you using cold water? That's inappropriate. You know, I'm like, hey, I'm just doing my best. So he kind of frustrates me. And I went in one time, I was like, man, I need this sauna. And, and I'm sitting there and he, and I'm like, ah, it's just me and this guy. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going to do a little loving kindness exercise. And so I did a little breathing in loving kindness, you know, which you promote. It sounds true, like nobody else. And, and suddenly I was like, open to this guy. I found out this fascinating stuff about his, his history in Siberia. I learned about his son, you know, so it was my own lesson of like, stay close to it, even in tough circumstances. Mm -hmm. Now, Dacker, one of the things I want to talk to you about is your work with the Greater Good Science Center yeah. and the focus on yeah. health professionals. And oh, to begin, why did the Greater Good Science Center decide we want to take all of this research we've done on what will help build a meaningful life, what will help bring happiness and bring this to health professionals. Yeah, thank you. You know, 20 years ago, uh, 21 years ago, we started the Greater Good Science Center thanks to a gift from some Tom and Ruth Ann Hornaday who have done a lot of work in cancer and that probably uh, because their daughter died of cancer at 26, I think. Um, so we were always thinking about physical health and as you know, um, Tammy, we started to promote this new science of compassion and gratitude and awe and cooperation, forgiveness, et cetera. And I, I was really struck um, by who just had a hunger for this. And one was school teachers, right? And they were looking at their kids, they were teaching, and they're like, these kids are way too stressed out, like too much pressure. How do we how do we build things in? And so we've taken 20 years to build an education program. And then the other group that immediately reached out with hunger and interest was healthcare. And I started to, I, I mean, to this day, I probably most of my you know, partnering and speaking is to healthcare groups, you know, the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente Summit here out in California and elsewhere. And the reason was, is one is, is, you know, they see 
the mind-body dynamics in action in healthcare. You know, so you get a guy coming into an emergency room who's having a panic attack, who's got all these health symptoms and is inflamed physically, and how do we work with this person, right? They also, healthcare providers, feel it personally. They are fried, you know, they are overworked, many are underpaid, um, 12 hour days, more dynamic hard work, seeing suffering than I've ever, you could imagine. I did a lot of work with healthcare providers during COVID. That was, that was horrifying. You know, the stories I heard uh, were like combat, you know, people dying in plastic bags with nobody around. I mean, it was, it was, uh, and so we at the Greater Good Science Center felt like here's a group of people and what I love about healthcare providers is they love science, they love proof. If it, if it works, let's do it, right? If it works for me to show a little gratitude to my, my, my patient and that makes the interaction stronger, I'll do that, right? And so we have built many different partnerships with healthcare providers grounded in this science and actionable practice that you've promoted, it sounds true, um, and it's, you know, frankly, you asked me what gives me meaning, Tammy, uh, yeah. and the last two years during COVID, I've spent uh, 60 hours working, 100 hours working with healthcare providers, just two hour, three hour meetings of how do we handle this trauma personally and with our, our patients. What do we build into the fabric of the provision of healthcare? Compassion, a little awe break, a breathing exercise. And it's been the most meaningful work I've done in a decade, frankly, just to like be part of responding to the pandemic. So mm -hmm. a lot of good reasons why we did the work. Let me ask you a question about the need, Dacker, yeah. which is when you use yeah. words like, like a combat zone yeah. and you use words like fried, and now you're bringing in techniques we can use, like practicing gratitude. I notice there's a part of me that's like, wow, I'm enraged. Yeah. I'm enraged to be in this situation yeah. as somebody who has a profession to be a healer. So yeah. how do you break through that to even begin to start practicing some of these pro-social emotions? Yeah, and you know, I've, I, you know, I've given talks to healthcare providers about the Greater Good Science Center and what we do, you know, grounded in neuroscience, et cetera, for 20 years. And there was, uh, it, it took a breakthrough, right? But the, the first thing is the data are clear that one of the most stressed out, um, most burned out sectors of work is healthcare. And if you hang around a hospital, and I regrettably, my brother, as you know, Tammy passed away from colon cancer and it was years of me being in the healthcare. It is just a hard environment, right? And so they know, people know that who are in the healthcare field. They are working really hard. The paperwork's hard. They're watching people die, a million people in COVID, in the US from COVID. And so part of the breakthrough is, is to ground it in their experience and to surface that. Like, one of the things I do with healthcare providers that I work with is like, let's all name a stress that's happening today in your work. And, and the, it, be it on Zoom and chat or conversation, personally, stuff surfaces and it's like, you know, worrying about vaccinations and a patient who's too poor, you know, or, you know, to get the right medicine, et cetera. There's a lot there. And so to ground it in healthcare providers' own experience, and, and then the second thing I think that, that really was breakthrough was, um, you know, healthcare providers are trained in neurophysiology and anatomy. And when you tell them about inflammation being reduced by awe or compassion promotes the vagus nerve, activate a stronger vagal tone, you know, this bundle of nerves in your body, or loving kindness reduces the amygdala reactivity, that... <laughs> Some audiences I speak to don't care about that. <laughs> Medi people in healthcare care a lot about that. And the third is actionable knowledge, which is 
I, I remember I was working with residents at Kaiser Permanente and I had this young resident, man, residents work hard. <laughs> they work harder than I've ever worked in my life. They're working a hundred hours a week. And Tammy, this young resident, young guy said to me, he's like, you know, what I love about this, we did like some breathing and some kindness stuff. He's like, what I love about this is that if I'm on an elevator <laughs> and I can get to my next patient, or I'm thinking about this elderly woman I'm, I'm talking to about her cancer, all I, I just need 30 seconds of setting a good intention and finding some peace, right? And I think we've done that at the Greater Good Science Centers has worked on being really practical to actionable knowledge. So it's, I think that's an audience who really, in healthcare, they receive it well. Mm -hmm. Let's hear more about that. You mentioned how compassion will increase yeah. vagal tone. And I yeah. know, as you mentioned, that studying the vagus nerve is something that's been central in your yeah. work. And that you've even studied people who you call vagal superstars. <laughs> and I, I wanted to know, like, what makes someone a vagal superstar? Yeah. And yeah, and, and how does practicing compassion help attune my vagus nerve and make it work well? Help me understand all this. Yeah. You know, there were I appreciate how deeply you're reading all the uh, obscure scholarship we've done, Tammy. So thank you. You know. As we started, sympathy is our strongest instincts, but so too is gratitude and awe and reverence and empathy, et cetera. Um, there are a lot there, you know, that Darwin wrote about David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, others. Um, but, you know, the field and the world started to get convinced by things like um, the oxytocin, the neuropeptide that's produced in your hypothalamus that makes you cooperate with other people. Whoa, there's a chemical that helps us with love and cooperation. Uh, certain regions of the brain that got a lot of attention and then the vagus nerve. And the autonomic nervous system is a couple dozen bundles of neurons that come out of your spinal cord, that go to different regions of your body that project into your brain. And one of them is coming out, uh, it's a cranial nerve that comes out of the top of your spinal cord it's a bundle of nerves called the vagus nerve. It's the largest bundle of nerves in the mammalian nervous system. It, it, and Steve Poor just first made this argument that our audience probably has heard of, like, this is a really interesting bundle of nerves anatomically because it, it activates, it intersects with vocal muscles, facial muscles. It slows your breathing. It deepens your breathing, slows your heart rate, communicates with digestive organs, and projects into your gut and takes in information from the flora and fauna in your gut, the microbiome. Um, and anatomically, Porges said, this kind of looks like it helps people care for others. The vagus nerve supports shifts in the body that help us care. And our lab has found, you know, if I feel compassion in the moment, elevated vagus nerve activation, if I feel awe for being connected to meaningful things in life, vagus nerve activation. Other laboratories, if I have high vagal tone, I handle stress better, trauma better. Um, I get along better with other people around me. And that led us, so it feels like it's about cooperation, connection, and caring, and openness very broadly. Um, the, the vagal superstar was idea was there's individual variation in everything. Every human trait, as Darwin wrote about, is subject to variation, you know, lots of variation. And we started to wonder about these people who have extreme levels of vagal tone and they, you know, vagal superstars. And they're very interesting, which is they share more, they respond to other people's suffering more intensively. Um, regrettably, uh, when it gets too extreme, they, they become too connected to other people. They don't protect themselves, right? So they will connect to dangerous people and strangers that they shouldn't connect to. So, you know, but, but on balance, you want to kind of cultivate vagal tone through compassion and breathing and yoga and et cetera, nature, and, and, uh, but not get too extreme.
Mm -hmm. High vagal tone, that's the right way to language that. What does that mean exactly? Yeah, well, we measure the vagus nerve by looking at the co-variation, how much your, card, your heart rate rhythm and then your slower rhythm of your cardio, your respiratory system, your breathing, inhalation, exhalation. And you look at those two rhythms mathematically and look at their linkage as a way to make an, a measure of vagal tone. The stronger the linkage, uh, in particular, as we exhale, how that's linked to shifts in heart rate um, is indicative of L, more vagus nerve activation. And on balance, the greater the linkage of respiration and cardiovascular uh, cycling uh, indexes greater vagal tone. And that predicts a lot of these benefits we've talked about of just handling stress better, feeling more optimistic, um, feeling like you're more connected to people around you, feeling happier, having a better health profile all replicated in studies. Um, so it's, it's good news. So it's measured mm -hmm. by looking at the co-variation of the heart and breathing. Right now, but you said an interesting thing uh, uh -oh. in, in everyday language, kind of, yes, it's, it's wonderful to care, but not overcare. Yeah. That's yeah. my language, like overcare. How does that apply to the health professional? Man. When do they find themselves, quote unquote, overcaring? It's their job to care. Yeah, that's one of the I really, um, you just gave me tingles thinking about this. Um, I really, you know, we talk about compassion burnout in the healthcare industry. Uh, and I really experienced this personally. Um, you know, my brother, you and I have talked about this, Tammy. Um, you know, he was, I was as close to him as any human being, just given the nature of our childhood. He was one year younger than me. And he, um, he got colon cancer, uh, and, um, it was two years of just horror, you know, and as any healthcare provider out there will know, man, if colon cancer goes wrong, it's a mess. You know, you lose a ton of weight, you can't eat. It's really painful. It's in the abdomen. It's, it's a mess. Yeah. And as is a lot of, uh, end of life stuff. And, and I had that experience too, where here was this guy, he and I had done everything together from basketball to, you know, traveling to Mexico, you know, just the closest of brothers and watching him, um, really succumb. Uh, I, I was fried, uh, because of too much compassion. You know, I was just like, you know, every instant of the day, I was like, how can I help watching his body? You know, he was 205 pounds. He, at one point I went up to this little hospital he was in, he was in the emergency room. He's 147 pounds. It's just like, you know, it was so much for me to handle. Um, and then I read Joan Halifax's, Roshi Joan Halifax's Being With Dying. Um, and there, and I teach this to healthcare providers, which is, you know, this is part of life, watching others suffer, you know, make sure you name their suffering as their suffering. It's not your suffering, you know, take a deep breath and recognize you are different. Uh, remember that those people want you to be happy and they want you, they're dying or they have colon cancer or they're suffering physically. They want you to be strong. And in fact, in one of my last moments with my brother, he said, you know, Dacker, you will be happy. You know, he knew this was overwhelming me through too much compassion. And when he said that, it reminded me like Roshi Joan Halifax, like your bet what they want from you is to be giving and to be strong. And, and, and so I think there are these principles for healthcare providers about watch out for too much pure empathic distress, taking in other people's suffering. Remember why you're here, name it, separate it, and find agency in that, that awareness. And, and I felt it, it transformed me to read Roshi Jones' writings on that, who works with healthcare providers through her hospice work, apply it to my own 
profound experience of compassion watching someone die and then teach it right and ground it in neuroscience mm -hmm. it's very uh, profound to hear you say that and i think this notion of caring deeply yeah but not over caring just yeah. to use that language applies in, in a lot of different situations i mean someone offered that to me in my mm. business leadership and yeah. said you know one of your problems tammy in interacting with your staff is that you overcare yeah. and like let people yeah. take responsibility that's their stuff it's not yeah. your stuff you've got your stuff work on that let them deal with theirs and i started having to see like where is the boundary which does bring up this question yeah it seems that a lot of people who are finding themselves burned out or asking, yeah. do I have the right boundaries? What, what's your thought about that? I, I, it's the challenge of our times. And when I, um, you know, in this work with the Permanente Medical Group and Kaiser Permanente during the pandemic, you know, one of the exercises that we all did, and this is with um, thousands of healthcare providers is, um, you know, what's the stress right now and boundaries, was top two, you know, outside of the vaccination complexities and watching people die, boundaries, work-life balance. And, and I think that, you know, the new technologies have, have, have just dissolved our boundaries. So, oh, I can work on Sunday when I'm in a park and with my kids. That's probably not good, <laughs> you know, as people are doing. Um, and I think your example illustrates exactly the, the germinal you know, nugget of wisdom we need, which is people in positions of power or leadership or providing care. Healthcare providers have enormous power. They may not feel like it, but they shape the lives of many human beings is to, to remember what is the other person's set of concerns? What are mine? And how can I care for those concerns? And to, to start to be mindful of those boundaries. And, and I think that that points us in a good direction and, and it becomes this uh, principle that we have to start thinking about collectively about this new digital work space that we've entered into as an experiment. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't, intentionally sign up for this, you know, uh, the new digital platforms, uh, they have been inserted into our work lives. We didn't decide to, you know, change our work with, with the pandemic, but we need to be thinking about boundaries. And that's going to be an interesting frontier for innovation to come. Mm -hmm. You know, Dakar, sometimes when people talk about emotional resilience yeah. for health professionals. There's this sense of like the responsibilities on the individual. Yeah. They're going to practice gratitude, awe, forgiveness, self-care, but it's the system that's yeah. broken. So, uh, and we need to change the system. And when you think about that, Dacker, and you think, well, if I could enact change in the healthcare system, what would be the biggest places you would go to get the most leverage? Yeah. Well, um, uh, man, you know, the so much to do. Um, I, you know, you, I've done a lot of research on in my work on power and hierarchies on inequality. And we got to just take a very cold eyed look at economic inequality within healthcare, right? Uh, are we paying our physicians, assistants enough, and nurses, et cetera, period. Because we know economic inequality degrades the trusting kind fabric of social systems. And, and so that's number one, that's a structural issue. I, I, you know, I think we have to think hard about um, the hours people work. Uh, I am really struck you know, in being parts of um, uh, these conversations with, you know, think tanks and the like of thinking about, you know, how do we extend the principles of the greater good science center in a more community-based health community-based health is, is huge, you know, schools of public health, like at Berkeley, like, how do I take this knowledge and put it into a neighborhood, right? So that the individual having the panic attack isn't rushed to the emergency room 
And, and that's a really costly event that involves a lot of people, right? When it could be community-based. Um, so, and then you, you've got to think about, <laughs> you know, when I started to talk to Kaiser Permanente uh, a lot about the Greater Good Science Center offerings that you're now extending to a broad audience, thank you, Tammy. You know, I heard the word frequent flyer, right? Which is the individual who's got all the health problems, inflammation, diabetes, you know, drug issues, unhoused, five, 600,000 unhoused people in the US, somewhere around that. Um, they come to the hospital a lot, frequent flyers, because they're using a lot of our services. Well, we used to have a million beds in the United States for people's psychiatric issues. Now we have 300,000, you know? And so we've moved those issues into emergency rooms and to police officers. And it should be our, that's a structural issue we have to fix, you know, is, we, sh we should have the right people, we should have places where people's mental suffering is dealt with um, and, 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 and their housing. So I'd, I'd look to those things. Mm -hmm. Now, I know, Dacker, your next book is going to be on awe. <laughs> and, uh, what, what brought you to focus on awe? Oh, awe. that's not awe, by the way. Thank you, Tammy. Um, yeah, you know, um, awe is the feeling of encountering vast mysteries that you don't understand. Um, and I, I was, I had a lot of complexity in my childhood, you know, it wasn't the, you know, I grew up in a, for much of my life in a kind of very poor rural area where kids really, you know, was hard and they didn't go to college, et cetera. And, um, you know, but I was raised to experience awe, you know, and my parents, <laughs> you know, backpacking and, you know, studying poetry and going to museums and festivals as a kid. And I grew up in Laurel Canyon for till I was 10, wild place, you know, it was just, it was like, wow, this is this amazing experience. And, and it has changed my life, Tammy, you know, I mean, um, uh, speaking of kindness, uh, you know, in 2001, I was lucky enough to be in the presence of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama and uh, up in Canada. And he, we were talking, I was getting to be in conversation with him in front of 2000 people. And I was like, here's the, you know, the Western view of, of kindness. And we struggle with it. And is altruism real? And he's like, you know, kindness and compassion is, is the fundamental truth, you know, and I just like, had this awe moment, like, wow, you know, here's this great tradition revealing what Darwin had said. So um, it, it just, it has changed my life. I think anyone who's listening out there would, would start to, as you reflect on it, like, when I think about when I, something mysterious, I don't understand, and it makes me get the tears, and I chill, get the chills, and I come out of that, and I'm like, I now know what my life should be about, in a broad sense, it should be about you know, helping people care for me um, or providing a, a center like the Greater Good Science Center that empowers care. Um, so I was raised to study awe and then I got really lucky because in the scientific literature, no one had studied awe. <laughs> Philosophers were interested in it, the sublime, and, and, and people thought like, ah, you know, it's, you can't study it, it's not, and, and in fact, you can study it pretty easily, and it has all these amazing qualities to it. How, how do you study awe? How did you study it? And Man. what does science tell us about awe? Like we all have our own inner experiences, yeah. we want more of it, we can talk about ways to even, you know, evoke yeah. it, but what does the science tell us? Yeah, you know, we study awe. We've we've gathered narratives of awe from around the world. We we've studied people at Yosemite. If you bring people into the lab and they play a really meaningful piece of music for them, they will they might tear up, right? Or you show them astounding video imagery. Um, we've studied people looking out at big views, and now people are studying you know people at festivals and music and dance, and so so there's a really rich science of awe, very innovative. 
And what I, you know, I distill it to a few things, you know, it's, it's little moments of awe, five minutes. It's hard to find something that is as good for your body as that, like going out and looking for awe when you walk or doing some gardening or listening to some African music like Sonadro Barté, who gives me awe. Um, man, it lowers inflammation, elevates vagal tone, um, reduces stress reactivity in your amygdala. It's incredible how powerful awe is for your body. As Emerson said, it, it repairs. Um, awe makes you serve more. You know, it makes you like, I want to, okay, I feel inspired. What is the thing I want to create that's broader than me, right? Maybe it's a group that, that really thinks about a innovation in this part of healthcare I'm working in, or maybe it's this volunteer group, et cetera. Uh, the third thing that's really interesting is awe really gives muscle to your thinking. And, you know, we have studies showing awe makes us more rigorous and more, uh, more holistic in our thought, deeper theoretically, more scientific uh, in terms of thinking about proof. So good health, finding what things you can do that bring you a sense of meaning, which you asked me about earlier. And then it just is good for your thinking. How is it good for your thinking? What's the connection there? Well, I, th I think what it does is, you know, and, you know, Michael Pollan wrote about this in the psychedelic in his book, How to Change Your Mind, which is psychedelics, which, by the way, are in 70% of that story, I think, is about awe. <laughs> like, whoa, you know. So, but he made this argument that psychedelics, and, and we have the data on awe, reduces this nagging neurotic voice in your mind, which is like, are you... Are you staying focused on your task? Are you abiding yeah. by social conventions? And it opens up your mind to other processes like systems thinking, right? Which cognitive scientists are interested in. Like, like when Darwin felt awe and suddenly discovered all the ecosystems that are collaborating in evolution, that was what awe does. Is it's like it gives you this big picture, makes you open up, makes you creative, makes you think outside of the box, everything we need in doing good work. Okay, Docker, I'm going to try something all on right. you here. There's no science behind this, all right? This is uh, this is coming from my inner laboratory. And it <laughs> has to do with being. Yeah. And the notion that mm. when my experience is that when I'm being, yeah. there's mm. a, a kind of like low level awe, sometimes a high level awe, but it's just being. Yeah. And that that somehow being feels more meaningful to me yeah. than any of the all the purpose-filled doings that I do out yeah. there yeah. don't really fill me up in the same way as being. And I'm wondering how you see that from your perspective. You know, I love conversations like these because I talk to wise people and they point to an idea that that, you know, I'm like, we should study that. Um, and and I'll that's a, a spectacular question. I agree. We need to be purposeful. We need to be doing things. I think our culture is too purposeful today. Yeah, Americans work harder today than they did 30, 40 years ago. That's a fact. And it's too much. Healthcare providers are probably working too hard. Um, and we got to figure out how to do that. But you said something that was really interesting, which is being awareness consciousness has this quality of awe and wonder to it, right? Wonder being different from awe. Wonder is, um, I want to I imagine how to understand what I'm contemplating right now. And, and I experientially, Tammy, when I have had those moments of real being, like meditating or yoga or playing basketball, and I'm like, this is it. This is my being. It has had that layer of awe and wonder to it. Um, and um, Rebecca Solnit, the brilliant writer who I revere, has this amazing book on walking. And in some ways, walking is like this deep form of being. And she talks about walking have this, has this consciousness 
where she very much like you described, like, God, I'm just, it's so, I just am wondering about this. So I think you've just proposed a, you know, a Tammy hypothesis about consciousness, which is it's a, <laughs> fundamentally consciousness is about wonder, openness. And the other cognitive processes where we're purposeful or confused don't have this quality of awe and wonder. Um, so, you know, I, I agree experientially. The, I think, I don't know, you know, people, consciousness and being are very hot right now. And I would encourage. Oh, that's listeners. good. That's good. I'm, I'm really happy to know that uh, being <laughs> is being is hot. All right. Well, I, I think your what your your comment is a rightful critique. Like maybe this whole purpose driven life. Of course, we need purpose. Yeah. You know, and when societies deprive people of purpose, that's terrible. But when I look at my twenty year olds that I teach today, they're too purposeful. They need more being. They need to like sit for 10 minutes and like, who, what is this? What is the world? What am I, you know? And, and I think you've just offered a novel hypothesis on being, which is it's wonder. And, mm -hmm. and I'll go get the data for you. That's my response. Woo! All right, <laughs> all right. Now in reading about some of your studies with awe, you talk yeah. about the power that can come from being with a tree. I know. Even for just a minute. And I wanted our <laughs> listeners to hear about this because this is to me one of the great, easily available, awe-inducing experiences we can avail ourselves to. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the amazing things, one of the big findings in our work on awe, and this is Yang Bai, is people feel it about two to three times a week. So it's it's around us. You don't need to hop on a plane and go to a resort, you know, in near Fiji or whatever. It's around <laughs> us, and um, and you know, the there's uh, you know it, it's there's especially nature, and I would also argue other people. Like once you open yourself up to awe and you walk around, you're like, there's a lot of amazing stuff that people are doing regularly, and you know, there's a lot of problematic stuff too, but. Um, so we started getting interested in this. And then Paul Piff, who's at UC Irvine, who was in my lab and is do, also doing work on this. He's so creative. And he, we have these eucalyptus trees in Ber on the Berkeley campus that are the, some of the tallest blue gum mm -hmm. eucalyptus trees in North America. And there's a stand of them. And when you go in them, it's like being in a temple. And a lot of temples or churches were built to mimic the patterns of forests. And you're like, man, this is awesome. Light, smell, eucalyptus bark, et cetera. So Paul took undergrads there. And for one minute, they stood looking up at these trees. Or he just turned their bodies and they looked up at this concrete building. And that little one minute of being near trees, um, look and contemplating trees, uh, they were felt less entitled, they felt less narcissistic, they were more helpful to a stranger who dropped some pens as part of the experiment. It brought out their better angels of their nature. And, and you know, once people start thinking, people love trees, you know, trees are remarkable. There's this whole, Suzanne Samard, this whole new tree science of how they collaborate and signal to each other and communicate with their roots and fungal networks and and how beautiful they are, and you know how metaphorical they are. Um, about you, just get the sense like I'm around something deep here. Dar one of Darwin's two central images for his thinking uh, was the tree of life. You know, the, 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 the trees have this metaphorical wisdom to them. So, yeah, you know, and that inspired a bunch of our research. Like, just get near nature. You know, go rafting. We, we did that with veterans and poor teenagers. Um, take in a view for a moment. Look at the sky. Watch clouds. All little moments of awe. Now, Dakar, as we're coming to a conclusion, as I mentioned at the very beginning, the Greater Good Science Center and Sounds True have collaborated to release an online training. It's called the Greater Good Training for Health Professionals, Science-Based Skills for Emotional Resilience and Well-Being. 
to conclude, what do you hope people will get, the people who engage in this online learning experience? What do you hope they'll get from it? Mm. So, you know, Tammy, like I, some of the, um, you know, I was with healthcare providers during COVID, as we've talked about for, you know, a hundred hours. It was some of my most concentrated work, just having the kind of conversations we're having right now. How do we find this? And and coming out of the science, and and first of all, I will say, you know, I'm I express my reverence for the work they do. Uh, I'm humbled by what they face the challenges, you know, the suffering, um, the bureaucratic and structural uh, difficulties. Uh, so I'm, I'm humbled by their work. And out of that, um, Eve Ekman and I, uh, and then guided by Jason Marsh and our team at the Greater Good Science Center, like, what can we give to healthcare providers with you? Sounds true. That can distill all the science of happiness, science and practice that we've taught, right, into a format that it's, that's tailored to healthcare providers and their unique lives that's really different, right, than an educator or somebody in, uh, in a leadership position like you, et cetera. Um, and what I hope that they get from this is, is what I hope um, that the healthcare providers uh, I've taught these 20 years got, have gotten. Uh, and what I've gotten from this material is like two to five minutes a day where you can build this into your life, right? Where you can, you can find out what's meaningful to you, what works for you. A lot of this stuff doesn't work for everybody. A breathe, it may not be a breathing practice. It may be that you have to be outside. It may have to be that you have to be near a garden or Maybe that you have to be with other people or dancing. Find those two to five minutes a day of practice and give it to yourself because, you know, that's, you can fit that into your schedule. And then second and related is think about how in these complex, multifaceted interactions with the people, people you care for, how do you give a little bit to them, right? It's just... 30 seconds of, okay, I'm going in, I'm talking to this grandmother who's in the end of life. She's got her family around. How do I orient towards that with kindness or separating myself from them? So a couple of minutes a day for yourself, find out what works. And we give a lot of op offerings. And then think about translating that to other people. It may be as simple as something like, Oh, I, I've got a I've got a little menu of questions that I'll ask my patients that are caring, right? That just change the interaction. So that's it. And and then um, and then an opportunity with the greater good as background and sounds true as background. If I want to go deeper, I've got pathways to pursue things. I just have a final question for yeah. you, Dagger. <laughs> I know how to feel awe being by myself, being yeah. out in nature with the tree. I don't know as much how to access it with other human beings. Yeah. What might you suggest so that I could just be awe-filled mm. uh, in the presence of a human? Well, I think, I think the first thing is to, um, is to think about um, and, and make this a kind of a deeper form of inquiry, like, who are the people whose lives have really moved you, you know? Um, and, you know, when I think about Jane Goodall, I'm just like, man, you know, wow. You know, her science and her observations in environmentalism. Um, so that's one. Um, I, I think about, you know, what I hope um, people reading my new book, Awe, <laughs> coming out, January 2023, it's like, there's a lot of, of goodness out in the world that, you know, that will surprise you and just take a moment to reflect on that. So study people's lives who inspire you, look to the everyday forms of awe around you. Um, and, and then, you know, to, um, to 
uh, think about kind of the deeper things that, that those two form pathways of observation, what do they reveal to you? I, um, you know, I, for various reasons, get really awe-inspired by people who overcome obstacles. Uh, you know, when I work with prisoners or veterans, you know, who are with PTSD, I'm just astounded by their strength. And so just to think about the themes that those, the people who inspire you and the everyday strength you see around you, what does it reveal to you? And, and then hope that it, it brings some awe to you. And also to remember people get it in different ways. Some people, it's all music, you know. Uh, some people, it's it's just nature. Other people, it's the social stuff. And that's okay. That's where, by design, meant to vary in really fascinating ways. Mm -hmm. I've been speaking with Dacker Keltner, along with Eve Ekman. They've partnered together through the Greater Good Science Center with Sounds True to create the Greater Good Training for Health Professionals science-based skills for emotional resilience and well-being. You can learn more at soundstrue.com. Thanks, Dacker. It's great to be with you. I always it's always great you. to be with you, Tim. Thank, Thank you. Thanks for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at resources.soundstrue.com backslash podcast. That's resources.soundstrue.com slash podcast. If you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I absolutely love getting your feedback and being connected. Sounds true. Waking up the world. <laughs>